Greetings. This is Phil St. Romain, and thank you for tuning in to my Awaken podcast channel. In this podcast, I will be reading from chapter 4 in my book, God and I, exploring the connections between God, self, and ego. This is a book that I published myself in 2016. It's an elaboration on my doctoral project, which was published in 1996 in a very sketchy manner with a lot of research notes and so forth. So you might say this is the trade book version of it. You can find it for sale on my website at shalomplace.com. So what I've already done is, in chapter 1, talked about the meaning of the term God as pure existence and unlimited existence, and tied this into some rather traditional notions of God that we find in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Chapter 2 on self elaborated an understanding of human nature as organism, psyche, and spirit, with self referring to our experience of being a subject, and that being a spiritual experience that permeates through our psyche and our body as well. So we don't have a self, you might say. We are a self. And I spent a considerable amount of time going over that. Ego, in chapter 3, refers to that aspect of self that is most conscious and interacting in the world. It is our experience of ourselves as reflecting and intentional and is usually grounded in our self-image or self-concept. So ego and self are obviously two aspects of the same thing. Self being more non-reflecting, always there, observing everything we do as from the background, and ego being self-engaged in the world of duality or creation. So if you're interested in all that, get the book, as I'm hoping you will do. In fact, I even make these first three chapters available online as a sneak preview. There's a great deal more that follows in the book, like chapter four, which we're going to go over now, and then a later discussion of the interactions between these different parts of ourselves, a self-ego relationship, self-God relationship, ego-God relationship, and so forth and spiritualities that flow from it. So then, on to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is entitled, The False Self System. And it talks about how the ego becomes wounded. And so I'll begin reading now. One can speculate that in a perfect world, the ego would realize its roots in self and have a natural intuition of God as well. Through its ongoing, realized union with self as the source of its own subjectivity, the ego would experience its unity with other people as well, who are also selves, and its union with the cosmos through the levels of psyche and organism present within self. The holistic nature of self would also be realized, no internal splits would be experienced. No constriction of the ego from the realm of the physical body. 
Something of the glory of God would be known through self, and if God so wished, an interpersonal relationship between God and ego could also exist. No dissolution or negation of ego intentionality would be required to experience this marvelous, unitive context of development. As long as the ego maintained the simple attitude as self, open to God, the cosmos, social relationships, holistic experience, the identity and giftedness developed by the ego would be congruent with self. Indeed, ego consciousness would be the crowning glory of creation, self, and God. Without an ego consciousness, there would be no one to appreciate the cosmos, no one to express self, and no one, on this planet at least, to praise God for it all. The moral and spiritual implications of these reflections are many, the most important being the goodness of the individual and his or her developmental journey. It is good to be an ego consciousness, desiring to be, to grow, to develop our giftedness, and to share this with others. To the extent that we can do this in openness to God, social relationships, openness to the cosmos and holistic living, we shall find our ego experience most rich and meaningful. The problem, of course, is that this context for ego development has been lost, and with it, the fullness of a healthy egoic life. The ideal relationship between ego self and God is so drastically different from the common experience that most people have that many would be inclined to believe that such harmony is only a theoretical affirmation. Unless we are quite advanced in the spiritual life, we experience egoic consciousness in the context of insecurity, alienation, and judgmentalism. Indeed, so disordered is the egoic experience that many writers of the spiritual life have concluded that the ego itself is the cause of this disharmony. As we shall see, however, this view is unwarranted. Now we'll talk about conditional love. The problem for all of us is that egoic development takes place in the context of conditional love. From conception to fetal development through childhood, adolescence, and into adulthood, the significant people in our lives often love us not so much for who we are, but for what we can do. We are loved because, and spend much time and energy trying to come to an understanding of the meaning of because, and what we can do to fulfill the requirements by means of which we will obtain the love and acceptance of others. Let's examine these dynamics more closely. Point number one. The environment in which we grow up is constantly giving us feedback about who we are as a person and what our competencies are. And in the book I have a table to illustrate that. Showing personhood and behavior and several different kinds of interactions between them. One possibility is affirmation. Affirmation refers to positive evaluations from others concerning who we are and what we do, but does not link the two. 
personhood is affirmed through smiles, an attitude of acceptance or welcome, hugs, and all manner of words that communicate that we are loved and valued, not because of what we do, but because we just happen to exist. Hence, it is important to affirm personhood at somewhat irrelevant times, when the other hasn't done anything particularly well, or when they have even behaved poorly. Affirmation also communicates positively about behavior, and is careful to keep the focus and communication on what has happened, what the other has done. Good job is a fine expression. Or, I like the way you did, and then you list the behavior. Above all, one avoids passing judgment on personhood because of a good performance. That's what approval does, and it is deadly. Approval, then, is a kind of counterfeit affirmation in that there is a linkage between evaluations of personhood and behavior. So affirmation keeps them separately, Approval links them together. Good boy, you ate all your food is a common example, along with many others of this sort. Surely parents and teachers who do this mean well, but they reinforce the idea that one is of value as a person because of what one does, and not simply because one exists and is here. It feels good to be approved, but the problem with this linkage is that When one's behavior is criticized, one feels judged as a person, too. And that experience is shame. Shame is the linkage between a negative evaluation of personhood and behavior. It's the emotional experience of disapproval. It is criticism not only of behavior, but more to the point of one's personhood as well. Unlike guilt, which is the feeling we have when we realize our behavior is out of line with our values, shame is a judgment against self. Guilt acknowledges wrongdoing and mistakes. Shame bears the burden of actually being a mistake or someone who is innately bad. Guilt motivates one to change behavior. Shame moves one to self-rejection. Notice again how the setup for shame is approval. Approval and disapproval have in common the conviction that one is lovable and acceptable because one does or has the right things. And everyone has this attitudinal virus to some extent. Now, discipline is the alternative to disapproval. We cannot always affirm the behavior of others, of course. Sometimes we need to even confront them for what they've said or done. When we do so, we use behavior-specific language and leave off judging them as persons. Get this. No one in this world has ever bothered us. But their behavior surely has. And so that's what we need to talk about. If we have been affirming of these people in our lives, it will be easier for them to hear our requests for behavior change. They'll know we love them no matter what. If they've been approved and disapproved by us and others, however, they will generally interpret even our best efforts to confront behavior as personal criticism. 
People who believe I am what I do cannot help judging themselves when their behavior is challenged. So that's all under point number one on how the environment in which we grow up is constantly giving us feedback about who we are as a person and our competencies. And so what we've talked about is conditional love. Approval and disapproval are conditional love. I love you because. And so there's point number two then. The developmental environment in which we all grow up communicates this approval and rejection. This begins in the womb, where the developing embryo is attuned to the emotional state of the mother and through her to the rest of the world. A good summary of this research can be found in an internet article, The Vulnerable Prenate, and that's a footnote in the book. Later, the care given the infant by the parents and family communicates conditional love in the ways we've talked about, primarily approval and disapproval. One way to think about the four possibilities, affirmation, approval, disapproval, and discipline, is that affirmation and discipline describe what goes on in relationship where one is loved unconditionally. Approval and disapproval or shaming is conditional love. Everyone experiences some measure of conditional love while growing up, but some home environments are much more damaging in this regard than others. Childhood abuse and neglect are far too common, but even in less extreme cases, the influence of conditional love leaves one scarred to some degree. And of course, that's in the classroom as well, among friends and so forth. Self-image is also affected. The ideas and images of ourselves that we pick up from the developmental environment reinforce our feeling of being loved conditionally. In many ways, we learn that we are loved for what we do, not for who we are. At the level of thought, therefore, we conclude that we are conditionally lovable and acceptable. Our self-judgment and our perceptions of others' judgments of us Two integral parts of self-image are deeply influenced by this conditionality. As the ego begins to develop, point number three here, the emotional consequences of conditional love, mostly fear, distrust, and shame, create turmoil in our psychic energy, and this distorts our ego development. It is as though the light of God mediated through self is obstructed. These emotions also contribute to an inner defensive contraction away from the outer world. Just as one withdraws one's hand from a hot stove, so too do we become more cautious in opening ourselves fully to others in relationship. To the degree that one is wounded by conditional love and rejection, an inner wariness sets in, biasing the will toward a self-protective stance and defensiveness. These defenses distort the ego formation process, contributing to a measure of willfulness and selfishness that all people struggle with. Ego defenses also contribute to a disposition of avoiding the inner world of emotions, especially those that are unpleasant. Repressed emotions, defenses, and a posture of willfulness distort ego development 
in a manner analogous to how cancer distorts the healthy development of bodily tissue. Some writers have called this situation the skin-encapsulated ego, as the ego experiences itself cut off or isolated from the outer world. The natural sense of connectivity between the ego and the outside world is filtered through defenses and all kinds of emotions, especially negative ones, leaving one with a sense of living in a kind of psychic bubble. Inside this bubble, the life experienced is, quote, mine, while outside of it, one encounters not me or other. This natural perception of duality, psychological duality, makes relationships difficult, especially if others are perceived as something of a threat to whatever level of inner harmony we might still experience. And point number four now. Concluding that we are only conditionally lovable and acceptable, we're constantly on the alert for the conditions by means of which we can become more acceptable to ourselves and others. Here the mind gets involved. Sensing the disharmony within, which we might describe as, I'm not okay, the intellect scans the environment and culture for clues to how to become okay. And there are many kinds of invitations held out. These conditions are perceived to exist in externals, in the opinions of others, in accomplishments, in money, other possessions, physical attractiveness, and so forth. The center of the ego, then, is drawn to the outside world as the source of approval, which is thought to be the cure to one's malady. The intellect also continues in its scanning and evaluating, preoccupied and judgmental, accepting the conclusion that I'm not okay, which is the harsh judgment of shaming. The intellect attempts to resolve this pain by pursuing a program of I'll be okay when. Whatever one decides is necessary, physical appearance, for example, or money, that then becomes a source of judgmental comparisons. Am I more attractive than this person or less? The longer the list of I'll be okay when factors, the more opportunities for judgmentalism. And point number five, this inner disharmony of emotional pain, defenses, and judgmentalism brings about a loss of ego sensitivity to its origin, emergence from self, and God's presence deeper within. To compensate, egoic identity becomes overly attached to its own self-image, which in turn is based on memories and attachments that have reference to approval and disapproval experiences. One becomes strongly identified with what's considered acceptable for obtaining approval. Cultural heroes or icons who have, quote, made it or succeeded are latched onto as models to emulate. If only we could be like them, we would be okay. The roles, labels, and self-judgments one identifies with are skewed in the direction of these heroes and or their values. Point number six. The persona or face we show the world is motivated by the desire for approval or the determination to avoid disapproval. 
This is how the ego manifests, but it doesn't happen unless the conditions we've talked about are in place. It cannot be helped that there is a socially acceptable side of ourselves that we have to present in public, and there's nothing wrong with having a persona in this case. Wearing clothes and basic manners are examples that everyone needs to attend to daily. In our wounded condition, however, the honing of the ego persona or mask goes even farther as we strive to present to the world those aspects of ourselves that we believe are likely to win approval or at least to avoid disapproval. We become people pleasers to some degree. And we pay a price for this in terms of simultaneously suppressing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are incompatible with our desired persona. This secret self or inner shadow can become so buried in unconscious levels of the psyche and body that the ego loses touch with it completely, only sensing inwardly a kind of gloom or malaise. The stronger the commitment to perpetuating a particular persona, the more repression goes on, eventually causing psychological and even physiological illnesses. Point number seven. We develop addictions to help cope with our inner sense of gloom and disharmony. By addictions here, I'm referring to ongoing compulsive involvements with mood-altering experiences. Experiences like alcohol and drugs, sex and pornography, gambling, Work can do it too, shopping, eating junk food, and so forth. These mood-altering experiences provide temporary relief from one's inner experience of shame and gloom, and so we indulge them to feel better, at least for a short time. Eventually, any mood-altering experience can become a problem in itself if one overdoes it. Ironically, the failure of addictions to... Help keep one going is what motivates one to seek counseling or make significant changes in one's life. So those are the seven points. I know that's a lot. I'll just repeat them again. I'll read them again, and uh, you can listen to the podcast again if you need your uh, memory refreshed on what they mean. False self develops as follows. Number one, the environment in which we grow up is constantly giving us feedback about who we are as a person and what our competencies are. Number two, the developmental environment in which we grow up communicates approval and rejection. And it's two sides of the same coin. As the ego begins to develop, point number three, the emotional consequences of conditional love mostly fear, distrust, and shame, create turmoil in our psychic energy that distorts ego development. Point number four, concluding that we are only conditionally lovable and acceptable, we are constantly on the alert for the conditions by means of which we can become more acceptable to ourselves and others. Point number five, the inner disharmony of emotional pain, defenses, and judgmentalism brings about loss of egoic sensitivity to its origin in self and God. Number six, the persona or face we show the world is motivated by the desire for approval or the determination to avoid disapproval. And number seven, 
we develop addictions to help cope with our inner sense of gloom and disharmony. Now that's describing how the false self develops within us. And it should be noted here that we're not all 100% false selves. There's part of our ego development that does still abide in some level of authenticity, honesty, healthy self-reflection. So then let's talk about that a little more. Back to the book. There is much more that could be said about all this, but for purposes of this discussion, we note that the problem is not the existence of the ego itself, but its formation in the context of conditional love. A whole system, and that's why we call the false self, is a system of mental and emotional programming develops to cope with fear, shame, distrust, and resentment that ensue from being loved conditionally. This system, not the ego, is what goes by the name false self. Because it pervades the operations of the ego and many aspects of the unconscious as well, the false self system of programming needs to be understood if we are to become disentangled from it. The seven points I've just gone over provide some of the key features of the false self. First, we note that it is a survival system developed to cope with the experience of conditional love. This in itself ought to tell us something about the antidote to it, namely, the perception of unconditional love. And that's what we come to in spirituality. Second, we note that it directs the attention of the ego to the outside world at the expense of its attunement to the self and God within. Furthermore, it reinforces an excessive attention to duality through defense mechanisms that not, that not only keep us from experiencing our inner turmoil, but also prevent it from being healed. These defenses create splits, a face we show to the world, the persona or mask, and a face we hide most of the time, the secret inner self. Third, the key conviction of the false self is that we must do something to become loved and acceptable. In and of ourselves, we are not thought to be worthy of love. This influences the ego unto an attitude of willful action instead of discerned responsiveness. Fourth, the identity of the ego is no longer naturally influenced by self and God, but is now structured largely by what are considered to be acceptable roles, labels, and judgments. Self-definition becomes an incessant preoccupation as we struggle to create an identity that is not merely authentic, but instead is acceptable to ourselves and others for their approval. The false self is thus a system of programming that reinforces itself at every turn, functioning more or less automatically in response to almost every situation that confronts us. Anytime our decisions and behavior ensue from this programming, the false self system becomes more deeply rooted within and our ability to resist its influence is weakened. And if that weren't enough to contend with, there's much about the culture we've developed that mirrors the false self system's values and communication patterns, 
providing social reinforcement of its dysfunctional emphases. Pervasive and insidious though the false self may be, we know that it is not the whole of our experience of consciousness. Something within even the most damaged among us strains against it and would be free of it completely if such a possibility seemed achievable. Such attainment is the concern of religion and, to a certain extent, psychology. What is the source of this inner sense that we are not ourselves when caught up in false self-thinking and activity? The response which suggests itself most strongly to me is that it is the still healthy aspect of the human spirit manifesting as ego that strains against the false self. Although much of the egoic energy has become co-opted by the false self system, the roots of ego and the deeper awareness of self can still discover a freedom to refocus one's life. As long as this tiniest spark of freedom remains, there is an individual consciousness available to do battle with the false self. The existence of this remnant of egoic freedom and desire is implied in every religion which would equip it with wisdom and connect it with power to overcome the disharmony within. Grace builds on nature. This is a basic conviction of St. Thomas Aquinas' teaching. Without an ego, it would seem that grace would have nothing to work with, much less any one to liberate. In summary, then, the false self-system is not real in the sense that God, self, or ego are real. It is more like a computer virus that perpetuates itself through decisions and behavior suggested by its fearful judgmentalism. The essence of this virus is the conviction that I am not okay as I am, but I'll be okay when, and you fill in the blank. No matter how one tries to complete this sentence, one is sure to be the loser for accepting in the first place the notion that one is not already innately lovable and acceptable. To the extent that the ego cooperates with this programming, it belongs to the realm of the false self and perhaps even to evil spirits beyond. The more one is invested in the false self, the more preoccupied and judgmental the mind becomes with ways of fixing oneself and the more alienated one becomes from one's true self, others, and God. The realm of religion is no sanctuary from false self-thinking and pursuits, however. Indeed, it often seems that many approach a religious tradition in the hope of finally learning what one must do to gain the approval that matters most which is that of God. God, as a prover, becomes the overseer of a system of salvation by works, with those who do being well rewarded in heaven and those who do the wrong things punished in hell. The great falsifier of this approach, however, has been the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the good a topic explored in depth in the book of Job. The liberating message of religion 
is that one is worthy of love and all good things simply because one is. Because existence itself is manifesting us. In traditions like Christianity and Judaism, where God is identified as the all-good and loving depth of existence itself, then God's creatures are also, by extension, considered innately good. Hence there is no point in trying to become acceptable if the maker of the universe itself has deemed it fit to give one life in the first place. This realization can then become a liberating spiritual insight to build upon. It would seem that the existence of the false self-system is totally irreconcilable with a monistic or pantheistic view of the universe. If God is all, then why should God, expressing in human form, develop a false self in the first place? And to whom is the pantheist appealing when advancing a teaching on liberation if the ego itself is considered illusory? In a certain paradoxical sense, then, the false self proves the creationist view, by implying a misuse of freedom in a being who is not God. Unless, of course, we deny the reality of sin, or else consider God to be capable of sin. The creationist also speaks of the dignity of that freedom by inviting the ego to become committed to another way of life. The book then provides some exercises to reflect on, questions for discussion, Again, the book is God and I, Exploring the Connections Between God, Self, and Ego, and it is available through my website, shalomplace.com. Thank you for listening. God bless.